Okay, hi, how is everyone doing? Um, this is episode seven. I'm Scott Shapiro of the Jurisprudence Course Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about Hart's solution to the chicken-egg puzzle and his response to Hume's challenge and to see whether that works. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. Uh, it's kind of sad uh, that um, you know philosophy is all about killing the father, uh, this big eatable complex. Uh, you have Austin, and then we talk about his theory, and then Hart comes along and he beats up on Austin, beats him to a pulp, and talk about how great Austin, uh, how great Hart's theory is. And then uh, we beat up on Hart, uh, but that's the way it is. That's the way philosophy is. So let's start um, with uh, the chicken egg puzzle and how Hart. Uh, tries to solve it. Um, okay, so what is the chicken egg puzzle again? Uh, we have this law, and we want to know who made it. And you say, oh, that person or that body made it. And you say, by, by virtue of what authority did that body make it? And you say, well, there's this rule conferring that authority and say, well, who made that rule? Some other body, some other person, yada, yada, yada. And it seems like we get uh, an infinite regress. And we saw Austin's solution, which is to say that the chicken came first. Uh, all law ultimately rests on the sovereign, who is somebody who's habitually obeyed, habitually obeys no one else. Um, and there's no further rule, which makes the sovereign the sovereign, but rather habits of obedience. And then Hart says, wait, no, no, that doesn't work. We can't make sense of so many things about law. If we try to rest it all on habit, we need a rule. We need the egg. We need the egg principle. And um, that egg for Hart were the social rules, uh, the secondary social rules, and in particular, the rule of recognition, which is a duty-imposing rule, which sets out the criteria of legal validity. It points out what properties, the possession of which by some other rule makes it binding within that system. So now we ask, well, how did, oh, by the way, just, just to say that um, I, I'm going to be, as a bonus, I'm going to be uh, giving you my my roast chicken recipe. So just want to, so if you're like, oh my God, this is so boring. First of all, I'm like, 
I think, like, well, how did you make it through six episodes of this podcast if you think this is boring? Um, uh, but, but, but still, what, what I will do is um, at some point, um, probably towards the end, I'll give you my uh, roast chicken recipe, uh, which, in fact, I'm making tonight. Maybe I'll make a video about it. Oh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. It depends on how clean my kitchen is. Okay. Um, so, so what's, what's Hart's solution to the chicken egg puzzle? Like who made the rule of recognition? So all of rule, uh, all of law rests on, uh, these secondary rules. Uh, and then you say, well, who made the rule of recognition? Who made the rule of change? Who made the rule of adjudication? And Hart says, no, 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 no nobody made it in the sense of engaged in some act of deliberate rule creation. Rather, what the rule of recognition is, is just a social practice. That is, it's not like somebody, but take, let's, let's take uh, a, a social rule, um, like take off your hat when you go into church. Okay, so it's not like anyone made that social rule that you have to take off your hat when you go into church. It's just that the rule is is the behavioral regularity accepted from the internal point of view. The rule just is people taking off their hats when they go into church and criticizing others when they don't do that. So it's not like a social rule is created through an act of authority. No, it's just simply created when people engage in a pattern of behavior from the internal point of view. So who made the rule of recognition? Well, no one deliberately made it through an act of authority. It was created by legal officials listening to certain rules that have certain characteristics and guiding their behavior by that pattern of behavior and criticizing others when they don't follow that pattern. That's all it is. So the chicken egg puzzle was solved for hard by simply saying that social rules are social practices. They're just people acting certain ways from the internal point of view. Okay, just like who there was no nobody had to make the social rule about taking off your hat when you go into church. That's just what the group does from the accepted from the internal point of view. Same thing about rule of recognition. Okay, but that that's that that solution to the chicken egg puzzle raises the problem of Hume's challenge. So you say, well, look, the rule of recognition is a duty imposing rule. That must mean that the pattern of behavior imposes duties on legal officials, but how does that happen? Well, let's walk me through the argument. The argument has to be, let, let's say some, some judge in the United States doesn't listen to the United States Constitution, okay? Let's just say, okay? And then you say to the judge, hey, wait, you know, the rule of recognition says that the U.S. Constitution is supreme law of the land. And and the judge says, why do you say that? You say, well, look, 
you and all the other judges, you listen, you defer to the Constitution and you have a critical reflective attitude towards that practice. And then the judge says back to you, wait a second, all you've done is told me what we do and how we think about what we do. But that's just an is, that's just a fact, that's just a descriptive fact about the world that a social scientist could, 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 could describe. Where is the normative fact that I ought to follow the rule of recognition? You can't derive an ought from an is. This is Hume's challenge, right? So if Hart wants to solve the chicken egg puzzle by saying that the rule of recognition is a social practice, and social practices just constituted by certain social facts, that is, pattern behavior and critical reflective attitude, it seems like Hart doesn't have enough stuff to be able to infer what he wants to say follows from there being a rule of recognition, namely that there's a duty to listen to the rule of recognition for judges. And then derivatively, there's a duty on the rest of us to obey those rules which are validated by the rule of recognition. So how can you get the legal odd from the seemingly descriptive is of a social practice? Well, here is where Hart's pretty vague about this and, in fact, doesn't really fully address it in the way that I'm setting up the problem in the concept of law. But I, I think this is what his solution was. So there's a bit of interpretation here, hard interpretation here, although I think it's... Um, it's it's there. It just doesn't put it in these these terms. I, I think I think Hart would have opted for what nowadays uh, meta ethicists would call expressivism. So the idea here would be that there are no normative facts in the world. There are just descriptive facts, but we can take different attitudes towards descriptive facts. We can either take a descriptive attitude, a theoretical engagement with, a, with descriptive facts, or we can take a normative practical attitude towards those descriptive facts. And depending on how we do that, we'll be able to derive different forms of judgment. Let me give you an example, okay? So let's say somebody has coronavirus, somebody has COVID. Now, you could, you could describe that in one of two ways. You can say, this person has an infectious biological agent, um, and if you get near that person, you can catch the virus and perhaps get sick. So you can, you can you, and you can talk about how infectious this person is and how many people they are likely to infect. So this is kind of an epidemiological approach to this person's having this pathogen. But you can also take a normative attitude towards the fact that somebody has coronavirus 
That is, you can, you can, you can say that person is to be avoided. Stay away from that person. Right. So, the to be avoidedness is not some additional fact to the fact that they're infectious. It's just a different attitude you're taking to the fact of their being contagious, okay? So we distinguish between facts and judgments. So there's only one fact there. Person has this virus, they're, they're contagious. But we can either have a theoretical judgment about them, that is, they're contagious, or we can have a normative attitude towards them, that is, they are to be avoided. Okay? So, what, what, what's, what's good about this way of thinking is that it doesn't, it's parsimonious. You're not multiplying entities without necessity. She's saying there's only one kind of fact in the world, but we can just engage with that one fact in different ways, either theoretically by studying it or normatively by affecting how we respond to people who have that, who are, who have that condition. Now, I think this is what Hart thought about the rule of recognition. It's not like there, so he thought that all laws ultimately, ultimately depends on social facts alone. And so something as a law, if you can trace its, you can trace it, it, it its um, origin to some social practice, the rule of recognition. But that social practice can, it can be engaged with either descriptively, that is by saying, hey, these people act in a certain way and they criticize each other when there's deviations from acting in that way. Or one can have, one can approach it normatively and say, hey, certain people act in a certain way and that practice ought to continue. And if I'm a legal official, I can engage with it by taking the internal point of view towards it. So the, when, I, when I said that you can address the social practice of rural recognition either descriptively, theoretically, or normatively, the way Hart would have put it, I think, is you could have either, you could take the external point of view towards the practice and just describe it, this is what people do, or you can take the internal point of view towards it. That is, you can take that as a to-be-followedness. That is, you commit yourself to taking that pattern of behavior as a reason for action. You can engage with something scientifically, externally, or, I will say, legally. So this is how the judge would reason about the social practice. The judge, because the judge is a judge and takes the internal point of view towards the practice, what the judge is doing is saying, you know, there's a social fact of a practice 
And I'm going to take the internal point of view towards it. And that's a normative judgment. And from that normative judgment, I'm going to derive certain other normative judgments about what duties I have in particular cases. So I'm not deriving an ought from an is by taking myself to have certain duties, legal duties, because of a certain social practice. What I'm doing is I'm deriving a normative judgment about what I should do now from my normative judgment about taking the internal point of view towards the practice. So I'm actually deriving an ought from an ought. And you say, but where's the, there's just social facts there. And, and Harvard said, yeah, yeah, but there are no normative facts ever. All there are different ways of responding to social facts. And the law, when, you, when you're engaged in legal practice, you're taking the social practice of rule recognition as being binding on you. And so what you're doing is you are deriving an ought from your general internal point of view of approaching that social practice from the perspective of oughtness. Okay? So basically, I mean, it's really neat, I think, solution to the to the chicken egg puzzle and Hume's challenge to say, you know, social rules are social practices. You don't need authority to make them. And you don't need normative facts in order to be able to derive legal obligations and legal duties from those social facts. All you need is to take a normative attitude, the internal point of view. And that way, we can see how all law ultimately depends on social facts alone because when you are engaged in legal practice, you are taking the normative attitude towards these social facts. Okay, I hope that's somewhat clear. What I'm going to do, I'm going to take a break, break now, um, uh, and I'm going to pick up on whether Hart was right to say that social rules are social practices. And then in part three, I will talk about whether Hart was right to think that um, the proper way to respond to Hume's challenges by saying that there are these multiple ways of engaging with social facts. Okay, I will see you in a bit. It was in another lifetime, one of toil and blood, when blackness was a virtue, the road was full of mud. I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. Okay, um, appropriate song for sheltering in place. Um, I hope everyone out there is is safe and healthy. Um, writing out this um, horrible pandemic. Um, okay, let's talk about Hart's solution to the chicken egg puzzle. Was Hart right to say that social rules were social practices? Now, 
I'm bringing it up now um, because the answer is no. Uh, if it was right, I wouldn't be talking about it. Um, uh, why? Uh, well, first thing to notice is it just seems like a what Gilbert Ryle used to call a category mistake. Um, it's a famous, this is a famous uh, Gilbert Ryle example from the concept of mind. Uh, he'd say, you know, somebody somebody's showing you around the university and they say, you know, here's the, here's the dormitory, here's the library, here are the classrooms, here's the gym. And the other person says, yes, 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 but where's the university? And I said, but no, 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 you don't understand. This is, that's what the, the university just is. These things, but, 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 no, no, I understand. But like, I know you said, here's the gymnasium, here are the classrooms, the library, but I want to, I want to see the university. So the person who's saying, I want to see the university is making a category mistake. It doesn't realize that the university just is the collection of these things. And it seems like Hart's, Hart's making a category mistake too by saying that social rules are social practices. Why? Well, rules seem to be abstracta. They seem to be abstract entities. Um, whereas practices are concrete particulars. One way to see this is that um, you know it seems as if rules have infinite domains. So if you wanted to describe the taking off your hat when you go into church, you would say, if you were being formal but you'd say for all x if x is walking into a church and x is uh, an adult then x should take off their hat so it's like for all x it seems as if there's a kind of infinite domain there um, whereas practices are concrete particulars they're just, they're finite entities you know there's only been examples of that person taking off their hat, that person taking off their hat, that person taking off their hat, that person not taking off their hat, and other people saying, hey, dude, take off your hat. So it seems as though um, rules can't be social practices because they're occupied different metaphysical realms. Now, one of the, thing, one of the things that Hart is kind of grappling with is he, he's trying to respond to what's sometimes called Scandinavian realism. Scandinavian realism, which kind of, which was um, uh, propounded by philosophers such as Alf Ross and Alex Hagerstrom, were very skeptical about rules, and because they were like, "Where's the rule? Show it to me. I don't see the rule." And they were um, they were realists in the sense that they wanted to say that rules are just predictions about what people will do. And Hart thought that that was a mistake. Rules aren't just predictions about what people do. They have this internal aspect. Um, but Hart, in, in, in his attempt to make rules not seem metaphysically weird, he said he identified the rule with the 
practice. But it seems as if you can do that because rules do seem to be abstract. It is a mistake to 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 say where's the rule. Um, you, you can't say where's the rule much as like you can't say where's the game or where's the poem. You can give particular instances of it um, or different formulations of it, but you, you, it's an abstract entity. Like saying like where's the number three. You can show that you can point to the numeral three, but you can't point to the number three. Okay. Now, one response to this um, you might give: you say, "Well, when he said that rules are social practices, he didn't. He maybe Hart should have shouldn't have said that he shouldn't have identified the rule with the practice. What he should have said was the rule, social rules are generated from social practices, so they supervene on them." Um, they're created by them. Rules are created by social practices. They go away when the social practices are not there anymore, but they're not to be identified with them. The, 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 the response that I'm imagining is something like what non-reductive materialists would say about the mind. They would say, you know, the mind is not the brain, but the mind is, create, is generated by the brain. Mental states are generated by brain states, even though mental states aren't brain states. Now, can Hart say this? Because, because if he were to say this, he, we would still be, we'd still be able to solve the chicken-egg puzzle by saying, you know, social rules are not social practices, but they're created by social practices. Now, uh, unfortunately, that doesn't work either because it's kind of, it, it's not true that social rules are created by social practices. Let me give you an example. So before it became a rule that people were supposed to wear their, their face masks when they left the house, everyone in our house would wear a face mask when we left the house, um, just because none of us wanted to catch um, COVID. Um, we didn't have a rule that said, you gotta wear your face mask when you leave the house, just everyone did it because that was just the rational thing to do. And if I saw, you know, my kids or my wife, you know, leaving the house or going into a supermarket without their face mask, I'd say, hey, put on your face mask. And, 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 and not because there's a rule to put on your face, put on your face mask when you go out or go into a supermarket. It's just because None of us want to catch the, the, the illness. And so it seems as if we, at least in our house, had and, and still have a social practice of wearing face masks when we leave the house. But there was no rule either in our house or in the community to wear face masks. There is one now. It was created by, it was, I don't know who it was exactly created by, the, 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 the mayor with the city council. Um, or the governor, somebody, somebody made it. I don't know who did it. Um, but um, before that, we had a social practice, but there was no social rule. Here's another rule: um, you're um, you're not supposed to um, take your laptop into the shower. Now, if somebody in our house took their laptop into the shower, 
we'd say, hey, what are you doing taking your laptop in the shower? But we don't have a rule that says don't take your laptop in the shower. It's just kind of obvious. You don't need a rule for that. But it is just kind of social practice. There's a behavior regularity except from the internal point of view. So it's not even true that social rules give rise to social practices because there are some social practices. I'm sorry, did I? I, I let me. I don't exactly know what I just said then, so let me rephrase it, okay? It's not even true that social practices give rise to social rules because we can have social practices that don't give rise to social rules, like don't bring your laptop into the shower and don't leave the house without your face mask, okay? Now, it's true that some social practices give rise to social rules, but you can't just say social practices give rise to social rules and so therefore we've solved the chicken egg puzzle because we want to know what kinds of social practices give rise to social rules and then we'd want to know whether the social practice of rule recognition is a kind of social practice which gives rise to a social rule, okay? Now, some positivists try to provide an answer for heart because it was kind of recognized that um, there were social practices that didn't give rise to social rules so it wasn't clear that Hart's theory of law identifying the rule of recognition with the social practice was adequate to give a positivistic response to the chicken egg puzzle, puzzle. Um, because not all social practices give rise to social rules. They said, no, there are certain kinds of social practices that give rise to social rules. I'm going to describe what they are, the, these later positivists said. And you know what? The rule of recognition is that kind of social practice. Okay, let me give you, let me, let me give you an example of a social practice that gives rise to social rules. And then the argument why the rule of recognition is that kind of social practice or is generated by that kind of social practice. And these are um, what um, philosophers call coordination conventions. What's a coordination convention? A coordination convention is a recurring solution to a coordination problem. What is a coordination problem? A coordination problem is a problem whereby the players strictly prefer coordinating on some solution on the condition that other people also follow that solution. So an example would be, should I drive on the left side of the road or the right side of the road? Now, if there's no convention about what to do, left side or right side, drivers care that everyone pick the same side. If it's the left, they want to drive on the left. If everyone picks the right, they want to drive on the right. Now, we drive on the right in the United States, so we would kind of prefer that people drive on the right over driving on the left, but if everyone else drove on the left, we would prefer to drive on the left, okay? So the idea is that there's this 
preference for conformity above all, and there's an arbitrariness to it. We don't, we, we care much less about any particular solution than we care that we all follow the same solution. So the idea that some people had, and so conventions, coronation conventions are solutions to coronation problems. So if there's a practice of driving on the left side, well then the convention is to drive on the left side. And we can then say, well, there's a rule to drive on the left side. And if there's a practice to drive on the right side, then we can say there's a rule to drive on the right side because that's the convention for tipping. You may say, well, how much should I tip um, uh, the, the wait staff? You say, what's the convention here? Is it 10%, is it 15%, is it 20%? And you say, well, that's what people around here tip 20%. And that, 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 that is a solution to a coronation problem. They've picked 20% as being the right way of expressing your gratitude and remuneration towards the, towards the wait staff. And the fact that everyone acts that way gives you a reason to act that way. So coronation conventions are social practices which give rise to social rules. And the idea that positivists wanted to give um, for Hart was to say that whether you should follow one kind of rule of recognition versus another is a coronation problem. We care to follow the same sets of rules and the same sets of legal authorities. If everyone followed the United States Constitution, we want to follow the United States Constitution in the United States. But if everyone in the United States followed the French Constitution, then we'd want to follow the French Constitution. Now, it just so happens that everyone in the United States follows the United States Constitution, which makes it the convention on this way of thinking to follow the United States Constitution, the practice of following the United States Constitution, thereby making it the case that that's what the rule is. And so here what we have is a response to the problem we noted earlier about Hart's solution to the chicken egg puzzle. We said, wait a second, not all social practices generate social rules. How do we know that the rule of recognition is generated by a social practice of the right sort? And these positivists responded by saying, well, you know what? Social practices, which are coordination conventions, they give rise to social rules. And the choice of a rule of recognition is a solution to coordination problem. It's a coronation convention. Coronation conventions are social practices which give rise to social rules. So therefore, the rule of recognition is a rule which is generated by a social practice. Okay, so I hope you followed that so far. Is that correct? No. Let me, let me, let me try to give you two reasons to think that thinking of the rule of recognition as being a solution to a coronation problem is just wrong. Okay, the first one is, is that when you, 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 you follow a coronation convention, 
because other people are following the coronation convention. You drive on the left side because other people are driving on the left side. You drive on the right side because other people are driving on the right side. Is it true that officials in the United States are following the United States Constitution because other officials are following it? Well, they might, they may not, but they might not. They might do it because they think it's the most awesomest constitution or because the framers were geniuses or because um, they made an oath to follow the United States Constitution or because they're just trying to pick up their paycheck. There's no reason to assume that what judges, the reason why judges are following the rule of recognition is because it's a solution to coordination problem because other people are doing it. They could have lots of reasons for doing it. In fact, it seems kind of stupid to think that you're following the United States Constitution because everyone else is doing it. It's not like driving on the left side of the road versus driving on the right side of the road. It doesn't seem arbitrary. You follow your constitution because you have certain kind of political connection to it. You like it. <laughs> you respect it. Um, you think it um, is normatively appropriate, not just because other people are doing it. Um, it's like, well, if you, if, 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 I'm going to follow the United States Constitution because everyone else is following it. But if they follow the French Constitution, I would do that too. And if they follow the, I don't know, uh, the the ISIS Constitution, I would follow that. I mean, it just kind of seems a weird way of looking at the normative commitments of of judges and legal officials. The point is not just that it's a it's a it's an unrealistic way of looking at why judges follow the law, though I believe it is. It's that it's a it's it's a particular motivation which we're imputing to judges, but we should understand that judges could have lots of reasons for doing as they do, and a theory of law shouldn't insist that judges are motivated for any particular reason whatsoever. There's another uh, reason why um, uh, um, thinking of the rule of recognition is um, not a coronation convention, but frankly, I'm bored of the subject. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I'm just gonna, okay, it is, it's just not gonna work. Um, uh, the rule of recognition is not uh, a solution to coordination problem. It's kind of a, I think it's not a good way uh, to look at it. I'm, so I'm just gonna end part two right now and pick up part three and talk about um, Hart's solution, uh, purported solution to Hume's challenge. Be back in a sec. Okay, um, part three, episode seven. Uh, let's uh, let's wrap this thing up. But before we do that, as promised, 
my famous roast chicken recipe. This is a recipe that we use every time that we do chicken, roast chicken. Now, um, it's not exactly my recipe. Um, it's actually Alice Waters' recipe. So when I said it was my recipe, that might have been um, an exaggeration. It might have actually been a huge lie, um, but but I'm making good on it. Um, so this is what you do. Take your chicken, get a chicken, okay, and spin. And, and spatchcock it, meaning take out the back. Um, uh, you can have your butcher do it, but, or, you're, or you can just like take out the back of the chicken and save it, tip the wings also, and save the um, the uh, the gizzard and stuff for, for stock. Because um, that, that the you can't eat the back and you can't eat the tips of the wings. Um, and it's good for stock and you can throw in some vegetables and you, and make a risotto the next day. Um, this is the spice rub to put on the chicken. So when you take out the back, then flatten out the chicken. Okay. And it, it, I, I find it just, it, the skin is crispier, um, and it's, um, uh, cooks faster. So for the spice rub, take a teaspoon of fennel seed and, and put it in a, in a, um, in a mortar and pestle and grind it and put in, um, about half a teaspoon of, um, of, uh, peppercorns and grind that too. uh, one and a half teaspoons of, of, uh, kosher salt. Um, a, and then about a quarter teaspoon of cayenne peppers. Although what I do is I, I, um, and then I put in some time too. So what I do is I, I grind the, the fennel seed and the pepper, and then I put in the salt and thyme. And then I kind of just shake the cayenne pepper on top of the chicken, which is good because um, it, it's pretty because the red red flakes um, on the pale skin looks kind of pretty. Um, and I do, do it on both sides, and then I put it in for uh, the oven for about 40 minutes, 45 minutes on 425, and it, it turns out really good. So I, 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 hope, I hope you like it. Um, if you get anything out of this, uh, podcast, um, at least the, uh, this recipe, um, uh, you'll, you'll have not wasted your time. Okay. So let's talk about, um, heart's expressivism. So remember for heart, the idea is that when we talk about legal facts, you know, legal facts are just social facts, but where we take a particular normative attitude towards those social facts, which you call the internal point of view. Now, recall from last episode or the episode before that you can take the internal point of view for any reason whatsoever. You just have to be committed to those social facts um, in order to take the internal point of view. And so when you're expressing yourself by saying you're legally obligated to act in a certain way, what you're doing is you're expressing your, the internal point of view towards um, those social facts. So if you say, well, you know, you're legally obligated now to wear your face mask, what you're doing is you're taking the internal point of view towards the practice of uh, recognizing certain rules which has certain characteristics, namely that they were... Um, uh, approved by the governor or the mayor and the city council or whoever did it. But what you're doing is you're expressing the internal point of view towards certain social facts. Okay. And what's good about not thinking of the internal point of view as a moral point of view, although it's possible 
you take the internal point of view for the moral point of view, but you could do it just because what you're trying to do is you're trying to, you know, advance your career or take home your paycheck or for whatever reason. The the what's good about that um, f- is that Hart's not assuming that um, officials or whoever engages in legal reasoning has to have certain kinds of motivation towards the law. They can have any kind of motivation towards being committed to following the law. Um, and so what Hart wants to do is be ecumenical as possible. Okay. Unfortunately, this does cause um, this ecumenicism and this expressivism towards um, legal obligations and the rule of recognition causes certain problems which are really fatal, I think, to the view. And here, 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 here are two problems. The first problem is, let's say the bad man, let's say, yeah, the bad man um, only follows the law because he doesn't want to get punished. All right, so he thinks, well, what what is the law in this jurisdiction and um, will I get punished for it? So what the bad man is doing is he's engaging in legal reasoning. He's trying to figure out what the law is so that he can avoid breaking it because he doesn't want to get punished. But the bad man doesn't take the internal point of view towards the law. He's the bad man. He doesn't think he's supposed to follow the law. And he only cares about the law because he doesn't want to get punished. So it seems as if when the bad man says, you know, I'm not going to do that because... I'm legally prohibited from doing that. He's not taking the internal point of view towards the law. He's doing the opposite, but he's engaged in legal reasoning. The problem seems to be is that you can have, you don't have to be committed to the law in order to figure out what the law is. And so when you say, oh, I mean, t- like let's 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 say you're uh, you're a uh, a law student taking a, a taking a final, and you're trying to fi- and you get a fact pattern, and you're trying to figure out what's the law say about this fact pattern. You don't have to be taking the internal point of view towards the law. You just want to pass your the test, and, but you're still engaged in legal reasoning. That's how you pass the test. So it seems like you can engage in legal reasoning and not take the internal point of view towards the law. So Hart's solution to Hume's challenge by saying that when you're engaged in legal reasoning, you're taking the internal point of view towards certain social facts, doesn't seem to be right because you can engage in legal reasoning even if you don't take the internal point of view towards those social facts. So that doesn't work. Here's another problem. Remember, we said you can have any reason for adopting the internal point of view, even selfish reasons, like you just want to pick up your paycheck. So now imagine the judge says to the defendant, well, you know, you're going to go to jail because you broke the law. And so what if the defendant says, wait a second, judge, when you say I broke the law, you're expressing the internal point of view towards the rule of recognition. But your commitment to the law just is that you want to pick up your paycheck. So how can I be punished for doing something 
where the very commitment that you're expressing doesn't apply to me. That is, the defendant saying, you're saying I did something wrong, but the only reason why you're saying I did something wrong is because you want to pick up your paycheck. How does your wanting to pick up your paycheck translate into me doing anything wrong? Now, Hart was kind of aware of this problem. The, the, the problem is, if you want to say that to engage in legal reasoning is to express the internal point of view, and you think you can have selfish reasons for adopting the internal point of view, then when the judge criticizes a defendant, the judge is criticizing the defendant for reasons that don't apply to them. Right? How does the judges wanting to pick up their paycheck have anything to say about what the defendant was supposed to do? Now, Hart's response to that was to say that when the judge says you're legally obligated, let's say, to pay your taxes and you didn't, when you, the, what the word legally does in this case is, it, is it's an expression of what the judge is allowed to do to the defendant. So to say the judge is a to say that the defendant is legally obligated to pay their taxes is to say that the judge is permitted to punish the defendant if they don't pay their taxes. It's a statement about what the how the judge responds to the defendant rather than what the reasons the defendant has. But that seems like Hart is making the same mistake that he accused Kelson of making. Remember, Kelson had said that all laws are really duty imposing on judges to impose sanctions. And Hart said, Kelson, the law is not about judges and legal officials. In the main, it's about what citizens are supposed to do. They're supposed to guide the conduct of citizens. But Hart's making the same mistake. Hart's saying to say that the defendant is legally obligated to pay their taxes is to say that the judge is allowed to punish the defendant if they, he doesn't pay their taxes. But that's to make statements of legal obligation be about the judge rather than the defendant. And that's, that's whack. Right? When you say, you did something wrong, defendant, because you didn't pay your taxes, you're telling, you're, it seems like you're saying something about what the defendant was supposed to do, not about what you, the judge, is allowed to do to the defendant. In fact, it seems like the judge is allowed to do something to the defendant because the defendant didn't do something that they were supposed to do. But that's not explainable under Hart's theory. Anyway. I hope this was understandable. Um, just to recap, we said that Hart tried to solve the chicken-egg problem by associating social rules with social practices, and Hume's challenged by saying that to um, say that you're legally obligated to act in a certain way is to express the internal point of view towards certain social facts so that there don't have to be certain special normative facts out there, just a normative orientation towards social facts. And we said that Hart's, theory, Hart's solution to the chicken-egg puzzle didn't work because, first of all, social rules 
aren't social practices. They belong to different metaphysical categories. Number two, um, not all social rules are generated from social practices. Um, lots of social practices don't generate social rules. And the kinds of social practices that do generate social rules that positivists have picked up on, namely coordination conventions, seem to be the wrong description of the social practice of rule recognition. As for Hart's solution to the to Hume's challenge, it seems as if Hart was wrong to say that um, to engage in legal reasoning is to engage in and to express the internal point of view towards the law because people who, like the bad man or the anarchist or the law student or the somebody who's apathetic, um, they can engage in legal reasoning without actually taking the internal point of view, number one. And number two is if you can take the internal point of view for any reason whatsoever, it seems very hard to see how you can use the law to criticize people if the reasons that you're taking towards the, uh, towards the law are purely self-regarding. Anyway, I don't think Hart's particular solutions um, work, but I, l- let me just step back for a second just to say that I think Hart was right to say that the law rests on rules and those rules have to be understood in terms of certain types of normative commitments. And that to say that you're legally obligated to act in a certain way is to express your, your commitments. It's just not clear what those commitments are and how you, when you say you're legally obligated, you're actually expressing those commitments. I think he's right to, like, he's, in, as we say in philosophy, he's in the neighborhood. His solution is, 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 is not right, but it's, 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 it's near right. It's, 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 it's in the same ballpark of, as the right solution. So we're not, we're, what we're going to do is next week, ne- next episode, we'll pick up on what I think the right solution is to these problems. Um, uh, by talking about the planning theory, and then we'll talk about the hard to work and debate, and we'll we'll move on from there. Um, but anyway, uh, please stay safe, um, and um, see you next time. Take care. Bye bye. Wait, let's uh, let me let me take us out with some. Damn my my phone is my phone is jamming. Oh, there we go. Sorry about this. Oh, right. I have to turn them.
Walking with my feet ten feet off a beam Walking in Memphis Hi everyone, it's Scott Shapiro, and this is episode eight of the Jurisprudence Course podcast. Today we're going to be doing the hard to work in debate, and in honor of that, um, I played uh, Walking in Memphis, Dworkin in Memphis. This was uh, suggested to me by Jeremy Robson on on Twitter. I just want to say I fucking hate this song. I have always hated walking in Memphis, um, but it is kind of funny, uh, Dworkin in Memphis. Um, also, because like, <laughs> Dworkin was like such a Yankee. Um, uh, yeah, he, he, he would always talk like this. And, uh, <laughs> um, so the idea of him walking in Memphis is kind of funny. Um, what I want to do today is I'd like to go through um, at least the first the first act of the hard to work in debate, and that'll become clear in later episodes. Uh, but what I'd like to do is talk about um, the model of rules, which was Dworkin's uh, kind of main critique against um, Hart, and uh, try to explain what he was objecting to in Hart's theory and why it, um, why it matters. Um, I think a lot of people have this sense when they read the model of rules and um, think about the Hart-Dworkin debate is they can't quite figure out why it's even a debate. Uh, it seems like Dworkin mischaracterizes Hart's position uh, all the time and it seems like they're talking past each other. Uh, and what I want to do uh, in this episode is try to uh, show that there really is a debate and it's very important. Um, and then I'll try to show how some disagreements that positivists have had among themselves, um, so-called the disagreement between exclusive and inclusive legal positivism, really emerge from different ways of responding to Dworkin's challenge in the model of rules. Um, okay, so part one, will be laying out like the first part of Dworkin's critique and part two will pick up uh, with the second half of, of the article, uh, the model of rules. And then the uh, part three will be a discussion of how positivists have tried to respond to Hart's, uh, to Dworkin's critique. Okay, so let us start. Um, the first thing I want you all to notice, I, I do this when I'm teaching in class, I begin by looking at the article itself, the model of rules, in which I, I posted a link on the, um, on the Google page, which is in, the, which is in my Twitter bio. Um, so you can look at it yourself. But uh, the article called the model of rules is, or, or sometimes I think it was reprinted as, is the law just a model of rules? Um, the, for the title, the subtitle begins embarrassing questions. And what, and I always ask students, what do you think Dworkin is referring to when he talks about embarrassing questions and what he's, what he's uh, alluding to is the very beginning of Hart's concept, a concept of law in chapter one of the concept of law, 
Hart begins persistent questions, talking about the question is, why, why is it that jurisprudence is concerned with the question, what is law? Um, and what Dworkin wants to argue is that Hart really didn't manage to answer the question, what is law? Um, so it should embarrass us that there are features of legal practice that legal philosophers haven't actually been able to respond to. Dworkin argues, I think quite correctly, that the reason why we're interested in the question, what is law, is because we want to know what our legal obligations are. Um, If something isn't law, then we may not have an obligation to listen to it. If something is the law, and we think there's an obligation to obey the law, then um, we will have an obligation. So the question, what is law, has very important practical implications Dworkin is arguing, and it's embarrassing that philosophers haven't given an adequate account of it. The, what, what Dworkin does is he sets out his own view uh, somewhat indirectly by critiquing what he takes to be Hart's view. He calls it the positivist view, um, and he says that Hart represents the the um, best version of the positivist view and he lays out three theses so I want what I want to do is I want to go through two of the theses uh, very carefully but let me just summarize what the three theses of positivism that Dworkin takes to be um, uh, constitutive um, of the positivist program and then he's going to attack it okay? So uh, just the summary is that every legal system, the first thesis is that every legal system has a master test, which distinguishes legal norms by their pedigree, that is by the way that they were created rather than what they are. Then we'll, this is what we'll, what we'll say over and over again in this episode, that um, uh, the pedigree of a norm is its, its, its institutional source. Was it enacted by the by Congress or by an administrative agency or by the chief sitting under a palm tree somewhere. That's its pedigree. Its content is, is it a good rule or not? And what uh, Dworkin is saying is that the first thesis of positivism is that every legal system has a master test, which distinguishes law from non-law based on its pedigree, that is its manner of creation rather than its content. Okay. The second one is that when the rules run out, judges exercise discretion. And the third is that there can be no legal obligations in the absence of legal rules. Okay, so those are the three theses. And let me, I want to go through them carefully because this is actually very important to try to see what Dworkin is attacking when he is attacking positivism and what he calls the model of rules, because he's going to take positivism to be the model of rules, and he's going to argue that the law contains more than just rules, and so therefore positivism can't be correct. So let me go through it carefully. This is a quote from the article. Um, This is the first thesis. The law of any community can be identified and distinguished by by specific criteria, by tests having to do not with their content 
but with their pedigree or the manner in which they were adopted or developed. Okay? Now, just notice that the Dworkin is kind of alluding to the to Hart's doctrine of the rule of recognition. He doesn't use that, that term. Um, he talks about a, a test, a community's test for distinguishing law from non-law, but what he's referring to is the rule of recognition. Um, two things to note. It's really odd of, in Dworkin's characterization of the rule of recognition that he doesn't make reference to the one feature that Hart insisted on, which was that the rule of recognition be a social rule. That is, Dworkin's is saying that the rule of recognition has to be a master test in a community, but he doesn't uh, specify that that master test has to be a social rule. That is, it has to be practiced from the internal point of view. And the second thing which is odd about Dworkin's characterization is that he says that the rule of recognition has to identify rules based on their pedigree, their manner of creation, their institutional source, rather than their content. Now, if you've read Hart and you heard me and you've listened to the other episodes, um, you'll notice that I never said anything, uh, Hart never said anything about uh, the pedigree of rules being part of the rule of recognition, or that the only thing that can be law is um, that it bears a property that is social in nature. The only thing he seemed to require is that the rule of recognition be a social rule, but he didn't require that that social rule I distinguish law from non-law based on its pedigree. Okay, so you know what? What, what, kind of, what is Dworkin talking about? I mean, he, on the one hand, he doesn't get the social nature of the rule of recognition correctly, then he imputes this weird pedigree criteria to the rule of recognition, which Hart never insisted upon. Anyway, let me, I just want to flag that because it's very important um, going forward. Let me talk about the, the second thesis of positivism, which was when the, when the rules run out, judges exercise discretion. Let me read what Dworkin says. He says, the set of these valid legal rules is exhaustive of the law, so that if someone someone's case is not clearly covered by a rule, uh, because there's no, none that seem appropriate, or those that seem appropriate are vague, or for some other reason, then that case cannot be decided by applying the law, and must be decided by some official, like a judge, exercising his discretion. Okay, so the idea here seems to be that when the rules run out, judges exercise discretion, the rules being those rules identified by the rule of recognition. Now, I think a lot of people, when they read this, they were really confused because, I mean, it just seems, it seems trivially true that the law just is what the rule, what the legal rules are. I mean, what's... Of course, when the legal rules run out, the law runs out. I mean, what 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 else is the law except for these legal rules? Now, it it becomes clear in the article that 
Dworkin is using a very specific characterization of what a rule is. Namely, it's some norm that what he, ha what he says is has an all or nothing character to it, as opposed to what he calls a principle, which is not all or nothing, but rather has what he calls a dimension of weight. So an example that he gives for a rule is, you know, the speed limit, don't, uh, don't drive more than 55 miles per hour. You know, that's, that applies in an all or nothing manner. Uh, or you need two witnesses to sign, a, to, a two witnesses for a will to be a valid will. So that's like an all or nothing um, uh, standard. But there are these other things at Dworkin claims, which he calls principles, which aren't all or nothing. They are. They have a dimension of weight. There's something that you're supposed to weigh in the balance. So rules can't conflict because each, a rule is conclusive, um, and you can't have two conclusive standards conflicting. Um, whereas principles, since they have a dimension of weight, it's like imagine you have a... Um, a scale, and you're putting some principles on one side and some principles on the other. Um, and whichever uh, is the weightier uh, set of principles, well, that will determine the case. And what Dworkin is claiming is that positivists like Hart assume that the law consists only in all or nothing standards. It never consists in these principles which have a dimension of weight. The example that he gives for, he gives several examples, but the most famous is the case uh, of, of the use of principles in the law is Riggs versus Palmer. Now, just a little, little side note. Um, uh, well, I'll tell a little quick story. Let me just say what Riggs versus Palmer is. So Riggs versus Palmer is a case in which this guy, Elmer Palmer, hates, well, I shouldn't say, he's a bad, he's a bad hombre. He's a bad dude. And um, he, he's afraid that his grandfather is going to cut him out of the will because he's a bad guy. And so he decides that he's going to kill his grandfather before he can change the will. And he does. He kills his grandfather. And then he gets convicted of murder. And he has the chutzpah to the gall to go to the probate court and says, well, can I at least ha get my money? Um, and the court has to decide whether it's going to allow Elmer Palmer to collect under uh, his bequest under the will. Now, the, the court, it's a very interesting decision. Uh, it's a split decision, actually. Um, the, the majority goes through the statute of wills and notes that there are no exceptions for murdering beneficiaries, you have to have two witnesses, it has to be in writing, blah, blah, blah. I've never mentioned anything about murdering beneficiaries. Um, but the court says, nonetheless, even though the rule doesn't say anything about, um, about excluding 
beneficiaries who murder the testator. Nonetheless, the common law contains a principle which says nobody should profit from their own wrong. And because of this principle, this is a very weighty principle, the court says that Elmer Palmer is not permitted to collect under the, uh, under the law. So this is an example of where the court doesn't recognize just a rule that is set out in the statute of wills, but also a principle which no person should profit from their own wrong, which when applied to the case, uh, renders Elmer Palmer ineligible to collect under the bequest because he because he murdered the beneficiary. Now, my little funny story, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna um, uh, end part one. Is the is that I was teaching this other course a um, uh, long time ago called Elements of Law, and uh, there's a there's a whole series of cases. Uh, uh, called Slayer cases. That's where the where a beneficiary kills uh, in some way the the somebody that he 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 she they are trying to collect from. So um, after Rings versus Palmer, this is another case involving a um, beneficiary who kills, I, I believe, his wife. Um, to collect under the life insurance policy. So this is not a will, but a life insurance policy. Uh, and the court says that you know you can't collect under uh, the life insurance policy just just like you can't collect under the will. What was really interesting is that the um, that the person who uh, kills his wife is named Elmer, also. So. In, Elmer, in Riggs versus Palmer, it's Elmer Palmer. In this case, it was Elmer. And I, as I have, I, as I say, as I was young, young, young teacher, and I, I, I made a classic mistake. I say, um, the the what you learn from the Slayer cases is never name your kid or marry somebody named Elmer. And then, of course, I go one step further and say, because it's such a bad name that they end up becoming murderers. And it was a stupid joke. And it was particularly stupid because as soon as I said it, as soon as I said it, I knew the mistake I had made. So there was 100 people in the class, and I said, to, I said, okay, anybody here's father, brother, husband um, named Elmer? And, of course, student right in the front raises her hand. So just like, don't make fun of people's names. That was the lesson I learned. Okay, take a little break. We'll come right back and we will follow up on uh, Dworkin's continuing critique of heart.